This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. About 12 or 13, 14 years ago, my brother David told me that I had to listen to this album. Um, and it was an album of, it was a CD of music by the Boston Camerata. And um, I think at that time I went ahead and bought a couple of CDs. And I don't know that you said much more than that, but then I was listening to the CDs, and would you start with the Boston Camerata thing? Now, stop a second and start it over again, but what's the title of the song? The Warning. Now, this is colonial America. This is church music. This is Christian music in colonial America. And as you listen to it, I want you to think about this being what comes out of Nashville in the CCM industry. And I don't want you to laugh about it. I want you to think, what would it be like if the CCM industry was doing this kind of music? You know, think about it. All right, now go ahead. Doug Wilson is a dear brother, and about 12 years ago, David Carell, Max, you've met him, where's Dave? Dave said, the reason we love Doug is why? Do any of you remember what Dave says? The reason we love Doug is that he's bloody. You know what that means, right? You want to be somebody that has blood on you at a battlefield. You don't want to be the guy that's been sort of hiding behind the trees and then jumps out when the victory's assured. And there's no question Doug's in it and Doug's bloody, right? And so you listen to music like this and you think, 
what was wrong with them that they felt like they had to scare people as part of their worship? You know, people today just are Christians. You know, we don't need to talk about damnation and presumption and hell and doom and, you know, and that's why we have the CCM industry. So you begin to listen to the CCM and you think about Doug Wilson being bloody and you think about what kind of men you love. Now, I don't know who you love, but I'll tell you, every single time I see Doug Wilson, and this has been from the very beginning, I tell him, Doug, I love you, and it just makes him as uncomfortable as all get out. (laughs) He's just hoping I won't hug him. (laughs) Honestly. But now he knows I will, (laughs) you know. And then you think, okay, so you're in an army, and that is what the church is. It's the army of God. What kind of men do you love? Who do you love? Who do you want to be surrounded by in a church? Well, you want to be surrounded by men that are bloody or are willing to learn, right? Isn't that who you want to be surrounded by in the church? Now, you know how Doug is always talking about what we need to do is build a culture. And, you know, he talks about how the Puritans had the culture. You all know that. That's what, that's what Doug says. Best culture the world's ever had is the Puritans. If we will build a culture... Now, how are you going to build a culture that is Christian, that calls men to follow Jesus Christ without music? When has any culture been built without music? And the one thing I can't get anybody, anybody to listen to is the music of our musicians here. Because it just... If anybody's willing to listen to David and me, my brother, they are absolutely unwilling to listen to the music, you know? But anything about the music, it's like, it just goes absolutely flat, you know? And I want to tell you, music is not an elective when it comes to reformation of the church today. If your people are listening to the kind of, uh, um, what would you call it? Tripe, yeah, schlock, schmaltz, the Clydermen. You know, if they're listening to that kind of thing, it's just hopeless. You're not going to, you know, you know, they're all on their smartphones and, and, and they're listening to that stuff and they're going to the movies. It doesn't matter what you preach. Their hearts are owned by the culture. And so I just want to say to you, you, and so what the band did was the band started to do music that wasn't the perfect homeschooling stuff. And look, Jody, the guy that's leading us, he was raised to be the perfect homeschooling early music violinist. That's what he was doing, the Royal Academy of Music over in Manchester. You know, he's completely gay. <laughs> Utterly, completely gay. And, and the proof of it is he was completely angst-ridden. Completely. I remember him bleeding all over my Berber carpet in front of my fireplace one night at our small group. And it was just angst. How long did that angst go on that night? I think it was about 45 minutes in front of everybody, you know. And then Jody was willing to be humble and to give up his early music. And to begin to write and to begin to lead amplified instruments. 
Why? Because Stephen one day said to me, or us, I don't know who he said it to, Stephen said, you realize that the rhythm guitar today is the organ of yesterday. And all of a sudden, I'd grown up with organs. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, of course, that's absolutely true. It shakes you. It's direct. It's manly, you know. And if somebody wants to have a hissy fit about the fact that you add a bass and it's like low vibes, you know, how Bob Larson talked about that, you know, then all you have to do is realize that's the pedals on an organ. And if somebody wants to have a hissy fit about a lead solo, all you have to do is talk about a descant, some, some, some blonde going descant on you. Do any of you know what descant is? Okay, here we go. You have to learn this because in the church David and I grew up in, we knew this, all right? So, so you all ready? You all know what a friend we have in Jesus, right? Okay, go ahead, sing. What... What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What? And listen, that was beautiful Sunday evening when we had him sings in our worship service, and that's what the, the lead guitar does. It plays a routine over the top of it. And if you, if you have problems with the band being the thing that's, in, that's interesting, right? You know, people say, well, you know, the band, it's all about the voices. It's all about being able to, you've all heard this. You know, it's all about hearing each other. Then ask yourself, what happens in between the third and fourth verse when you have a good organist? Any of you know? Between the third and fourth verse, what happens is the organist goes bonkers. And as you hear it happening, you think to yourself, you know, I'm just going to shut up for a little bit. And the organ tells you to do that. And even if you've never seen it, if you're in a church that has a good organist, all of a sudden you're just going to go quiet for a bit. And the organ goes... Right? And you know something different is going on. And you're so intimidated that you start going unison. Okay? Everybody sings unison. And the organ just goes wacko on the last verse. And you can't sing parts because the organ is now doing it. Now listen. This is what David and I grew up with. But it's highbrow. At college church, it's highbrow. Do you see this? And so instead of it enfranchising bloody men, it emasculates them. And this is why 95% of the organists in America are gay. It's at least 95%. This is true. Did you all know this? I make a habit of asking people at tall steeple Presbyterian churches whether organist is gay. And again and again, they'll say, well, you know, That's actually what they say. They say, well, now that you mention it, you know. You know, and I just laugh. Why? The organ is an instrument of unbelievable ostentation and power. Don't you think if you were a gay man who was was incapable of mating with a woman that you would want to play an instrument that had the most masculinity of anything on the face of the earth? Do you all understand this? 
And so why are we willing to have organs in our church? And we think it's pious, but we're unwilling to have amplified instruments. Why? It's bogus, guys. And the reason I'm going, I'm talking to you about this is I don't believe there's going to be reformation in our churches if we will not force the music to change. I don't believe it. And what I tell people, and this is what I actually said to Ken Myers of Mars Hill Audio, all of, some of you have heard of him, what I actually said to him after the conference, he'd gotten done speaking, as I said, you know, Ken, I said, uh, I think the best interpretive grid to understand music in most Reformed churches is that it, everything about the worship is designed to keep from offending the wives of the elders. And I said, the worship never rises any higher than that. Okay? And I said, consequently, it's very effeminate. Because it's just written to not offend the women. But when has any music that's designed to not offend women ever spoken to your heart? You know? And this guy runs a studio. And, and that's why he's going, right, right, right. And David Canfield is probably near the top three people with knowledge of classical music in the entire world. I'm sorry, David, but would all of us that know David agree with that? Is it, he's just, he's the guy that knows. How many, how many pictures of an ep- exhibition recordings do you have? Just Musorsky, how many? Just that piece of classical music, 15 or 1,600 versions of it. How many records did you sell to the Library of Congress? <laughs> and listen, he was one of the elders that led the movement to use crass, masculine, simple instrumentation. Do you understand this? Men, we have to recover reality in our music. We cannot aim to, to, to not offend women. We have to reconnect with the themes of what? Well, you know CCM will never mention the devil. It will never mention hell. It will never mention judgment. And yet you go back to colonial America when the church was vital. And guess what? They sang about judgment. Presumption. They sang about doom. Okay? Now... Let me ask you a question. Is it biblical what I'm saying? Is it biblical? I mean, you know, it's one thing for me to talk about, hey, you know, we have to use amplified instruments. And actually, I don't care. If you want to go to a cappella, that's almost as good as amplified instruments. Okay? Because it's masculine. All right? So it doesn't have to be amplified instruments. Just go a cappella. All right? But what about worship? I mean, what about Scripture? Does Scripture say anything like I'm saying? Now, go on and play the, uh, yeah, the Anglican chant. All right, now stop. What is this? Psalm... One three seven. What is it about? Do any of you want to sum up this psalm? You, by the waters of Babylon, you should know it. You want to sum up this psalm? 
How, how are you going to do it? Yeah, yeah, the captivity of Jews. That's nice and cleaned up for the women. Do you remember how this psalm ends? Okay, let's keep going. And this is the psalmist, David, right? Okay, start over again. Start over again. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. When we remembered thee, O Zion, their homeland. So the harps were hung up on the trees. So our captors require of us a song. They say, come on, sing us a song of Zion. It's down with down to the ground. Wasted with misery. Happy shall the one be According to how you treat us. Blessed shall he be, take thy children and throw them against the stone. Glory be to the Father and to the Son. comforting those left behind. Do you find Psalm 137 comforting? Comforting. I think it is. And I don't think I'm any different from you. Some of you are shaking your heads no. Nate, you shook your head no. I think you find one Psalm 137 comforting. Now, why would I say that when you say, no, I don't? 
What is Psalm 137? Isn't it a perfectly autobiographical sketch of what it is to be a Christian living in America today? Aren't we in captivity? Aren't they taking our children? Aren't they saying down with her, down with her? Every time your church is called a cult, isn't that what they're saying? Down with her, down with her, right? Isn't that when you do discipline and a third of your people leave? Aren't they saying down with her? And who are they saying down about, you or are they saying down about the bride of Christ? And so listen, you listen to Psalm 137 and you're alive as a Christian. I don't see how you can't be comforted by it. Now you say, well, yeah, but I can't enter into the things about smashing their babies against the rocks. And I say, yeah, those imprecatory psalms are things that we have to enter into by faith. Because the culture that we live in has influenced us so much. And I know this is going to sound weird, but we don't have the faith to sing that and to pray it. And you say, boy, that's awful. And I say, yeah, I know. (laughs) I don't have the faith. And yet the fact that that is our prayer book, That's what Psalms is. It's the Christian's prayer book. Should indicate to us that there's something defective about our prayer life and the way we relate to our culture. Right? Right? Does that make sense to you? If there's a part of Psalms that we think shouldn't be there, and that's what you always think when you read the imprecatory Psalms, right? It shouldn't be there. Down with it. Down with it. Right? Probably the problem is us. Right? Every passage of Scripture that we cannot stand, that we condemn, that we judge, it is always us. We're the problem. It's not the text of Scripture. And when you really begin to know yourself, you will be able to open the Bible and instantly show the parts of Scripture that you condemn. (laughs) And then you'll start being a good preacher. Because you'll open up the Bible and you'll see, well, I hate that, and I don't agree with that, and everybody knows that's wrong. And that will just be the three phrases you read first. I mean, that's how much Scripture is God's thinking, and it's different than ours, right? And listen, the first key to comforting those who mourn is letting ourselves accurately see the world that we live in. And not speak of it using lies. And that's what the book of Psalms is. The book of Psalms is a tutor making us see the world as it actually is. With all the pain, all the pride, you know. You know, their eyes are fat. They have no pains, you know. I I almost gave in to them. But then I came into the house of the Lord, and then I remembered. And what does he remember? Yeah, their feet are on a slippery slope, and they're headed to hell. And that's what comforted him and and restored his sanity. He had almost become a brute beast, right? And then what about Psalm 2? What a wonderful psalm. So, 
music is absolutely essential that we realize that especially our men must have their hearts wakened up through music. And I'm telling you, it's hard work. It's hard work to submit to real leadership in music and to have them force you to be zealous in your pursuit of God in worship. Because we're not used to it. We're not used to anybody violating our personal space. We're not used to people telling us that we should sing louder, that we should lift our hands, that, you know, that this should be a participatory event. But men, I keep telling you, if you read William Law's A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, you hear me this saying this every year, right? You all know that book. You all know William Law, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. You're saying, no, you don't know it. Right? Well, when he was asked by another intellectual to recommend about 20 or 30 books that were just foundational for any person who was going to grow through reading, the great lexicographer, Samuel Johnson, as recorded by James Boswell, said that William Law's A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life was one of the books he had to read. All right? And in that book, you remember William Law talks about men who say they don't know how to sing. Right? And you remember what he says. He says, you don't know how to sing. You do too know how to sing. You know how I know you know how to sing? Because I've been in the bar with you. And the minute you get a little alcohol under your belt, you're all, you don't even care how you sound. But boy, are you singing. But then when it comes into the house of God, what? You're dead? And so our music and worship needs to not leave men on what would you say, Jody? Unmoved. I'm glad it was you this time instead of me. I'm like, I'm like, oh no, my phone's going bad. And so, and so, what you have to do is you have to think about the Psalms and you have to think about the incredibly intense music of the Psalms. And then you have to think, that has to be in my home with my children. That has to be in my devotions with my family. That has to be what I pace myself with when I run or when I walk, whatever you do for exercise. And that needs to be in my worship service. And if the women don't like it, they can lump it. Because I will not go for the women of my church. If I'm going to set my standard for the women of my church, I will never get the men. You won't get the men. My dad said to me when I went in the ministry, he said, go for the men and the women will follow. And my father was more of a feminist than anybody in his time. (laughs) I mean, that's a secret that you didn't know. And he still had the sense to say that. So men, I'm just telling you, you have to change the culture of music in the lives of your people. If your people are going to begin to Uh, walk by faith and do the kinds of things that are required with Adam. You heard him this morning or this afternoon, Adam talking. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to talk to your relatives about, you know, how how much morphine they're taking at the end of life? Oh, that's going to be fun. (laughs) You know, whether or not they have a feeding tube, whether they're going to die of dehydration. Have any of you thought this through, what this could mean with your family? Okay, you're going to have to have songs that you sing in the car on the way to the hospital and on the way home. 
And they're going to have to be the kind of songs that make you think about being bloody with other men, that make you think about Doug Wilson. You understand about Paul. You know, you remember how he ends Galatians. Everybody remember how he ends Galatians. This is like one of my favorite sections of Scripture. You remember how he ends Galatians. The end of Galatians, he says, (laughs) and I can't say it the way he'd say it because you'd be scandalized. But basically, he says, look, from now on, what? Yeah, bug off is a nice way of saying it. He says, don't give me any. Because why? I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus Christ. That's masculine language. And you know, feminine women love it. We have elders, and when they get up and they line up here in the front, we don't try to have women serving communion so that they, we can do like a bait and switch, you know, after they become Christians. We can tell them, well, actually, you're supposed to submit to your husband. I know he's gay, but, you know. So we just go ahead and have men at the front serving communion. We're not trying to confuse people, okay? And those men stand there, and, and, and they're real men. So, you know, real women, you know what they do when they see those men standing there? Dave Carell, where are you? Tell them, stand up, first of all. This is Dave. Look at him. Max. And so when he's up here with the other elders, tell them about your wife and mine. They feel safe and they cry. They cry. Now... One other, go ahead and, and, and play uh, the, the last one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Play O Death. music is this? It's bluegrass. Who is it? It's Ralph Stanley, father of bluegrass. Is this, I would say it is the most typically American music. They'd argue with me and say it's jazz, but it's either jazz or bluegrass, right? Huh? Yeah, I think it's bluegrass. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this music suited to worship? You know, yeah, yeah, no, but 
What about the theme? It's unbelievable. Listen, guys, maybe, maybe our women would take this easier than the band, okay? That's fine. But the theme is death. And we're not going to begin to comfort those who grieve until we begin to look at death, to preach about death, to sing about death, to prepare for death. And listen, if you, if you can't tolerate songs about death, you can't listen to them, you think it's a cosmic bummer, and like you're not into it, you know? You can never help anybody who mourns. You can't help them. Remember who it was this morning? I don't know whether it was... It must have been, it must have been David. But you remember um, somebody was talking about... No, it was David Carell. He was talking about it's all about you. And listen, people that are mourning and need to be comforted, they know when it's about you. They absolutely know when it's about you. And how do they know it's about you? Well, because you're filled with platitudes. And you're trite. And you're... Um, um, glib. And your uh, synonyms. Yeah, shallow, glib, uh, facile. Facile. F-A-C-I-L-E. Now listen, none of you know those words, do you? You don't know the word glib, do you? And you don't know the word facile, do you? Be honest with me. Do you know those words? Now, do you know why you don't know those words? It's because our culture is perfectly defined by the words glib and facile. A glib man and a facile man with a facile tongue is a man who says everything properly and none of it goes deeper than a fingernail scratch. He always says the right thing at the right time and it never grabs you. Because you know he hasn't lived it, and he doesn't want to live it, and it's just something that he knows he's supposed to do, you know? And so he's a chaplain. He's got his dress whites on, and he says, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. Okay, facile means easy. And it's so easy. But what about these songs you've been listening to? Oh, death. Oh, death. And what about the early colonial music? And what about Psalm 137? Come on. It's biblical. It's biblical. So what I'm saying is we need a good dose of reality. We need to, to say no to the Facebook culture, which is entirely plastic, facile, completely, utterly glib, and nothing but lies. Okay? We have to get our young men off Facebook so they can live. And music will help you do that. Music will help you re-engage with life. All right. And so a number of years ago, we were staying at a, uh, we were going on a vacation with the Taylors. Mary Lee and I were staying in this little room. 
And it was down at the uh, uh, Good News Club headquarters down in Springfield, Missouri. Um, what is it called, David? I had a conversation today with at least one man who didn't know that. And so I assume that there may be some others. And so when Tim said he's on vacation with the Taylors, that's Mary Lee, his wife's family. And that's her heritage would be the whole of Tyndale House Publishing. And the reason you need to know that is that uh, David and I were talking today, this afternoon, and David was saying, how do, you, how, do you, how do you process the issue that a number of our guys think that we don't know what it is to be hip and Christian? And that, like, certain parachurch ministries are cool and our churches aren't. And they think that we don't know that it's possible to be cool and Christian. Is, is that sort of what you said, you know? And, and David said, I mean, I don't want to say it to him. But, you know, when we were growing up, we were at the epicenter of that. We were in Wheaton, you know? We knew what it was to have famous Christians in our house for dinner, you know? We, we had them as friends. We saw it all. You know, it's kind of like, I've been to Disneyland or Disney World. I've been underground, you know, where they can come out of character. All right, David and I have been there. That's the point of, of saying who Mr. Taylor is, okay? The guy that started Tyndale House, the Left Behind series, you know, all that stuff. All right, now, so we're on vacation. We're down at this uh, Christian ministry, and they have... Uh, rooms, like motel rooms, sort of. And I wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm crying. Why am I crying? I'm crying because I have just had a dream that my father has been operated on in surgery, and that he comes out of the surgery, and he's almost ready to be fine, and then he uh, goes into... uh, he, He... he, he goes bad, and I'm not going to tell you all the story because there's parts of it you don't need to know, and it is the most real dream I have ever had in my life. There is not an ounce of question in my mind that God sent that dream to me because that's how my father was going to die, all right? And I wake up, and I'm sobbing because I love my father. And my wife wakes up and she says, what's wrong? And I said, God just told me how dad's going to die and that he's going to die. Well, I didn't want to call up my mother and father in the middle of the night to find out whether he was already dead. It was that clear, that, that clear. So I stayed awake, was in the, ba- the bathroom crying until about, I want to say, 7 o'clock. Um, and finally, I felt it was late enough that I could call. So I called up. We got my mother on the phone. Hi, Mud. And immediately I knew that he hadn't died yet because she was just like, hi, Tim, you know. And I think it was a year later that our family went to Cape May for for vacation. And Dad was going to Mayo for his checkup in like a month, two weeks to four weeks. And... um, I just knew he was going to die. I just knew it. You know, that's the hospital. Now I'm understanding this is what's going to happen. And so he goes to Mayo, and Dad has this sort of lonely, 
Clint Eastwood kind of thing, you know, like, I'm going to go up to Mayo by myself. And they told him he needed to have a valve replacement and a bypass operation. So he tells everybody he's going to, he sends me this thing about what to do with his social security if he dies or something, you know, and it's like, it's like you have had a vision, you know where you're headed, you know, you know, you're, you're in a shoot like, you know, like the cows. And it's just like clockwork, it's going. So he says to my mother, to our mother, Mud, he says, I don't want you up here. And so we call Mud and we say, uh, go up, go up. So she goes up and then we get some, uh, we go out and pick blackberries and we go up with him and we give him the blackberries because that's his favorite food, that's his final meal. He eats the blackberries, right? And then the next morning we get up real early and go into his room and they're getting ready to take him for surgery and he's looking at me and I'm up against the wall and he, he, he points at the picture and he says, and I look behind me, and it's just a little off center. So I, like, lift up that side. He's in the other side. So I just spend a minute there straightening the picture, and then it's good, right? And then they come and take him. And you've seen what's happening. You know what's going to happen, right? You know it. And so you're in the room with, like, 50 people. It's male. And everybody's getting these calls with the family of such and such. Your 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 loved one is off bypass, or has, they've you know they they're in the recovery room. The family come you know, and you hear all this, and you're waiting to hear about. And then all of a sudden, the announcement: the family of Joe Bailey, please come. He's out of surgery. He's off the bypass machine. You know, he's you know, and and it's all surreal. You know what I'm saying? It's like I know this isn't how this ends, but I'll go ahead and play the game, right? And so they say to us, come over here, and we go over here, and Mary Lee had just taken Michael somewhere to, to feed her. Michael was just this little baby. And uh, so we go to this room, and it's right next to recovery. And we get in the room, and the surgeon comes in, and he says, he says something terrible has happened. And of course, I know what's happening. <laughs> I know what's happening. Oh, death, you know? It's death. And he says, we're working on him. So what had happened is he'd gone into severe arrhythmia. And he keeps coming back and forth, telling him, we're working, we're working. It's right, right on the other side of the wall. We're in this little room. Mary Lee and Michael are gone. My mother's there. And my mother's just keening. Do you know the word keen? It's beyond moaning. It's like, it's like, uh, it's only a woman can do it. It's just this just terrible noise. And she's rocking as she sits. And uh, then he comes in and he says, uh, I'm sorry, he's gone. And some of you have heard this story before, but at the time there was a commercial, and it showed Michael, what's his name? Fox. Fox. Michael J. Fox. 
it showed him, it was an anti-drug commercial, and it showed him walking down a hallway, and as he walked towards you, into the camera, doors kept shutting behind him, and he said, if you do drugs, the options of your life, and each, each step he took, a door slammed shut, the options of your life are going to be taken away, and away, and away, and away, until, and then he's right in your face, the camera, until there is no other option left. Very powerful ad. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and my father's just died. And God warned me. I knew exactly what was going to happen. And I see this hallway in the, in, in, in the ad. And I realize that on this side of that hallway is love for God, and on this side of that hallway is hate and bitterness, judgment. And this, honestly, is the happiest moment of my life Right then. Why? Why? Why, huh? No, 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 no. I wasn't thinking about my father at that time. My father was gone. Because I love God. There was nothing in me that wanted to go to that side. Nothing. There was no anger, there was no bitterness, there was no judgment, there was nothing that wanted to turn from God. It was like, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Though he slay me, though he damn me, I will serve him. And I know what I am, trust me. (laughs) He would be completely justified to damn me. And every single one of you, don't, don't have, make any ideas about who you are and what you are to God. Right? Now, I'm telling you all of this for a couple of reasons, and here's the first reason. Into that room, in the midst of my mother's keening, came a chaplain. And that chaplain... When they told us that dad died and my mother starts crying out, Oh God, not another one, not another one. It's the most awful thing, you know. And that man looks at my mother and he says, You have a right to be angry against God. No prior conversation with that man. None. We'd never met him before. And he's a chaplain employed by mail. And that's what that man said. Honestly, can you imagine what I wanted to do to that man? I have never felt as violated in my life as that man. And you realize, men, that that's, that's the way I'm afraid we are at times with people that are suffering. It's all about us. It might not be that bad. But they know when we're not willing to suffer with them. They know when we're going to come out with trite things and not enter into their misery. And that is not Christian love. 
Remember I say about Doug Wilson? Remember what I keep saying about Doug Wilson? What do I say about Doug Wilson? What do I say about him? Come on, tell me. He's bloody. You know, we want to know how to minister to people and how to grieve and how to mourn, but we are unwilling to see the women that can't meet our eyes because they've been molested by their fathers growing up. Do you hear me? We are unwilling to notice whether or not there's a feeding tube being put in. We're unwilling to notice whether that little straw thing that keeps them from being dehydrated is being put on their tongue because they are dehydrated, but at least it keeps their tongue from cracking. Do you know this? Those of you that are ministers, you should know this, right? These are the little tells that Adam sees as a doctor. There are little signs that will show you whether or not somebody's being dehydrated, whether or not they're dying from starvation. There are little things that indicate whether or not murder is taking place in the hospital room. Are you with me? And so what are we? Are we, are we cultivating awareness of the suffering of our people? Are we cultivating it? It's hard work. Do people know that if they bring the most awful revelation of their lives to us, do people know whether or not we will cry with them? Or will they expect us to just sort of brush them off, you know? It's like, go well, go be, what is it, go be well, go go be fed, go be filled, (laughs) you know? Listen, music. Oh, 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 death. Oh, death. Blessed are those who take your children and smash them against the rocks. I once went to confront a grandfather who had sexually raped his daughter. And after working with him a while, it came time to tell the family. Are you with me? Because, of course, the, 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 the whole family had been corrupted with the most awful sexual sins. Grew up in the most conservative church you could ever imagine. Okay? And so finally it gets to the point where the grandfather has to tell his children, and they're in their 50s. And then there are some of the grandchildren there. And so the cataclysmic disaster that's going to hit this family when this grandfather finally tells them why everything that's gone on in their family has gone on. Are you all with me? And you're in this room, and this man, of course, at this point in his life, he's constitutionally incapable of saying anything true. You know, in other words, everything he says takes the edge off it and makes him a victim. Have you ever noticed that about people that are predators? They're always the victim. It's unbelievable. And as this man begins to say what he did to his daughter in front of her siblings and their spouses, this this woman's, the victim, 
her, her husband is there. And her husband's he, he, he's a man, right? You know what that guy did? I watched him as it started to come out of his father-in-law. That man went over and began to rub the shoulders and the head of his father-in-law. Now, why did he do that? Can you tell me why he did that? Would you know why he did that if you watched him? Why did he do it? Any idea? (laughs) You would think that. Say it louder. To keep him from doing something worse. At that moment, that man wanted to kill his father-in-law. And the only way he could, the only way he could control himself was to do the opposite, which was to love his father-in-law. Do you understand that? If he just tried to sit there, he might have killed him. And so he went over and he stroked him, he massaged him. And he was shaking, right? Now, guys, this is the world we live in. If you read Scripture, this is what Scripture is filled with, is accounts of death, of incest, of adultery, of murder. And these are the heroes, okay? And if we're going to comfort those who mourn, we have to feel what they feel. You remember what it says? It says that we are to comfort the afflicted. We're to comfort those who mourn. How? As? Stephen, would you read that to us, please? As we ourselves. With the comfort we ourselves. Would you? Do you have your Bible? You don't have it. Yes, with the comfort we ourselves, yes. So the first person to find it, read it, would you please? But what if we're the kind of person that's so trivial and glib and so facile that we just like get drunk or smoke dope or do Facebook? Do you think we're going to be able to understand that man? Do you think we're going to be able to be led into that man's life? Do you think that we're going to be invited to that family gathering? And when that man, right when all the family is assembling at the last minute, says, he's not going. You've pushed him too far. The whole family's assembled waiting for him to show up, and he's at his house, and he's telling you he's not going to go. What are you going to do? You know, it was interesting. A couple of, uh, I don't know, a month or two after that happened, I was talking to that man on the phone, the predator. And he said, you know, Tim, do you mind if I share something with you? And I said, no. I'd love for you to. Because at this point, I'm looking for him to do anything to help me 
because all the work has been on the other side. You know what I'm saying? And so Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? And I think that that's a hint to us that we should ask other people to help us so that when we help them, they're more willing to take it from us. Do you understand? And so I was like, no. And he said, well, you know, Tim, I think if you would try to say things positively instead of negatively, that it would make it a little easier to go down with people. And I just... I just could not fathom that this man had said that to me. (laughs) Of all the things in the world that I would have expected him to say at that moment, he's finally at a point where he appreciates the work and he's going to tell me something that will help me. And what he tells me is what? Well, he tells me, you did it all wrong with me. It would have gone a lot better from the very beginning if you'd been positive with me. And this is what's involved when you work with a culture and a generation that's been raised on pornography. They've brought strange women into their homes, and so all the children are victims. Do you understand this? You know, you can't... (laughs) If you sow the wind, you reap the what? And so if our churches are filled with pornography, what's going to happen? Our our homes are going to be filled with incest. Do you understand this? And incest is absolutely awful. And incest, you will think, as as sometimes gets said in this church when we deal with situations like this, you'll think, you know, I just wish that we'd dealt with death. It would have been so much easier. It would have been much less painful if we had been dealing with death. Does God comfort us as somebody who is not uh, in touch with our suffering? What does it say in Hebrews? Our high priest, tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. He's sympathetic. Are you sympathetic in your work as an elder and as a deacon and as a pastor? And I mean really sympathetic. There's absolutely no way for us to love our people without entering into their suffering. And let me tell you, man, that is exceedingly difficult work. Mourning and grieving are hard work that must be done. What happens if you don't do the work of mourning and grieving? You become a Facebook person. Honestly, that's what happens. You become glib. You know, everything you say is facile. And you have absolutely no gravitas. None. And gravitas is not a function of being heavy like I am. Gravitas is a function of of, of men who have suffered and who will bear the weight of responsibility. People look at you and they know immediately whether you're willing to bear responsibility. They, They just, it's innate. People can just see it. 
You all know that, right? People know whether you will bear responsibility or whether you won't. And so, men, we have to feel the suffering of our people. I remember our, our David, it's in my sister-in-law. We were down there visiting when Nathan wasn't sick yet. And we decided we wanted to watch a movie. So Sandy and I, it was only a couple blocks from their house, we went down to Blockbusters to rent a movie. And we go in, we're going up and down the aisles, and I see a movie that I think looks fun. It's called Three Men and a Baby, right? And I pull it off the shelf, and I say, Sandy, Sandy, what about this? And instantly, Sandy is, her face is ashen. She's crying, and and she's a strong woman. She looks at me, and she says, could we please, could we please not watch that movie? And I'm like, whoa, where did this come from? And then what? They couldn't have children. And all of a sudden, something I was completely clueless to, completely clueless, and all of a sudden, it's completely clear to me that there's not a moment of her life that she is not in terrible grief because she doesn't have children. And then I learn what all the women in our church that can't have children are like, right? And so I just think to myself, well, you know, I, I think that's a little bit over the top. And I think I'm going to cultivate an ignorance about that whole aspect of life, you know. No. You embrace it as a pastor. And you learn something that's so helpful for ministering to people. You know? And you begin to see all over the place women that are in terrible suffering more than their husbands usually because they can't have children. And all of a sudden, your ears are tuned to your people. And you give them permission to suffer, and you suffer with them. And that's the privilege of ministry. You with me? And then you begin to see all the ways that godly people bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, all right? One of my favorites is a couple named Eric and Helen Rasmussen. <laughs> oh, man. So Eric, and I, I, hope, I hope he won't be offended. I don't think he would be. But anyhow, Eric is this economist, and he, and he runs with the, with the wolves. You know, he knows all the big dogs. A few years ago, there was a celebration of the birthday of a, a, a famous economist at Yale, a friend of his. And so the wife sent an invitation out to all the famous economists at UC Berkeley and University of Chicago and everything. And about, what, 10 of them came together and all of them had been assigned paper subjects or they'd submitted them, right? And all of them came and spent the weekend giving papers to each other and then arguing about it, you know? And that was the celebration of the birthday of this Yale economist. Eric chose as his subject um, why God will not reveal himself to people. And that's what he spoke on to this group of of pagan economists. Why God chooses not to reveal himself to men. Okay? And then there's a couple economists that respond. 
Well, so Eric and Helen are out visiting his dad, who's a professor at U of I, agronomy or dairy science or something, soil science. And his dad's old, retired. And they go up to Rockford, and on the way back, he puts three of his children in their car. And they live at a farmhouse right next to an Amtrak. And so there's this parallel road that's like 55, 60 miles an hour, two-lane, and then crossroads. And if you're on a crossroad within, from here to Dave Carell, that close is this high-speed track. So if you turn on or turn off, immediately you're hit. And this was an unguarded intersection. <coughs> and you know what's coming. On the way back to the farmhouse, his father got hit by an Amtrak train. And his wife was in the car and three of Eric's children. And his father was killed. His mother was killed. And his oldest, second, second daughter um, was killed. And the other two children of his were in bad condition and taken to Rockford. Now think about that. You get home, where's, where, oh, what's going, and then all of a sudden, I'm sure they knew, and they get over there, and the car is so, so completely obliterated that that the wrecker has no idea what kind of car it was. Oh, I didn't know that, so the policewoman came to the door of the farmhouse. They had been waiting and wondering, and and it's within vision, you can see it from that farmhouse, you can see it crossing, right? Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is not for them, all right? I'm telling you this story because one year later, the Christian school here in town, the class that uh, Lizzie was her name, the class that Lizzie had been in had put together money, the school, to buy a little bench to sit under a couple of trees on the church, on the school property. And so it was a little, like, limestone kind of sculpted bench. And then all the kids in her class had done these little pictures, you know, of, like, construction paper, different colors, and drawing on it and stuff. And it was a blazing hot day. And they were going to have a ceremony where they were going to present the bench to the school in their behalf, and they were supposed to show up, and then they were all going to give. So I went, and Eric and his wife Helen are there, and they're not public people. As a matter of fact, Helen is extremely private. She's Korean. And there they are, this little family, standing there, this little huddle of people. And all the kids from the class, one by one, come up to them and hand them their construction paper. And there's the bench. And watching Eric and Helen, they kept smiling at each child. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking, how, how, do, they, how do they bear this? How do they bear it? Remember David talking about going to conferences with my dad? How do you handle 
a school telling you that you must come and spend an hour with people reminding you of your daughter who is dead and giving you gifts and having, and you're just public property. You can't say no and you have to smile. You understand this? Your public property. And afterwards, I said to Eric and Helen that I was so um, moved, so proud of them. There was not a hint of diffidence in them. There was just this sort of complete vulnerability. Their grief is your grief. Your grief is our grief. We'll go ahead and help you handle your grief. Each one of you little children as you come up to us. And we're just here to serve you. And that, listen, that's what we're supposed to be like as pastors and elders and deacons. We're not there for ourselves. We're public property. And we are to enter into the pain of others. And if you say, well, I don't understand things, God will give you understanding. You talk about a man that doesn't understand things. <laughs> How about Dan? There's nothing Dan understands. And then he's got a pastor, David Abassara, who's a lummox. Wouldn't you agree? But you're learning, aren't you? Both of you. Aren't you learning? What are you learning? Humility? What else are you learning? You're learning how to enter into your people's suffering. You're learning the <laughs> damn. I know you think it, but you can't fix everything. You can beat your head against problems that are spiritual, problems of grief, problems of sin, all you want, but it doesn't yield like an electrical box does. You know what I'm saying? And you realize that a lot of what you do as an elder is just to feel the suffering of other people and that there's no higher calling You know how your wife will sometimes say to you, would you just shut up and listen to me? Have any of you had your wife say that to you, you know? Why does she say that? Yeah, he says, because I don't shut up. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But why does your wife say that to you? Hmm? Yeah, men are natural problem solvers, and man, do you feel like an idiot when you're where somebody is dying and you're a pastor, so they're paying you, and you don't really have anything to do. <laughs> and so what do you tend to do? Huh? Glib or... Blend in or just motor mouth, you know, like, you know, tell stories, jokes, you know, or ask how the sister is or, you know, something. 
And you know what my dad said he wanted when he was going through the death of my brothers in his book? The book is excellent. Do you remember what my dad said? He said one dude showed up and did what? Yeah, just sat with him for an hour and what? Yeah, that was about it. He, he, didn't, he didn't say anything. And guess which visit helped my father? It was that visit. Hmm? Yeah, and that's what, he, yeah, that's what he says in the chapter. He cites Job's friends sitting with him. So, Years ago, at the General Assembly, looking out at the people, it all of a sudden hit me that the evangelical church hates discernment. It absolutely hates discernment. The evangelical church thinks it's spiritual to avoid knowing the difference between good and evil. (laughs) I know it sounds perverse, but it's true. All right? But if you're going to be able to comfort others and to bear their sorrows with them and to mourn with them and thus fulfill the law of Christ, you're going to have to learn to discriminate between good and evil. You're going to have to do the hard work. Okay? And that hard work will yield your ability to sit and know when to be quiet. And there will be times where you should say, all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. And you then will have the faith to say those words knowing that they have already been said 30 times by other men who were completely glib and were probably texting while they said them. You know? But you'll have the faith to use the single most excoriated text of Scripture. (laughs) You know? Everybody tells you don't ever say that. But that is exactly what you need to say at certain times. And so, men, we have to do the hard work of seeing the suffering, entering into it, knowing the difference between good and evil, knowing ourselves, and knowing our people. And the final thing I'll say is there really is nothing in this life that gives as wonderful gifts as death. Death is the gift that never stops giving. The treasures that you get through death are unbelievable in ministry. Now, that sounds deep like federal vision, right? You know, it's like up is down, white is black, elephants are snow. And death gives. But probably my favorite, well, one of my two or three favorite hymns, and certainly my favorite verse is what? You all know it. That's right, yeah, yeah. You all know the hymn, O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. And the final verse goes how? Yeah. Yeah. 
O cross. O cross, what? That lifteth up my head. I dare not ask to fly from thee, which means run. I lay in dust. Life's glory dead. And from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. You see, death gives. Jesus says if any man would save his life, it would he will lose it. But if any man will lose his life for my sake and for the gospel, he will save it. And then he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? Let him take up his cross and follow me. And death is unbelievably productive in the hands of God. Preparing for death is unbelievably productive. Two stories and I'm done. David Wagner is a missionary of our church, and he was in uh, he was in Zambia, and this was at the time when the funeral processions from AIDS deaths were just constant on the main road, which was adjoining the Theological College of Central Africa. You stand in the driveway of David's house and just watch the funeral processions go by on the main highway. And so I went over to the campus, and they were having advisee groups, and the head of the college was a guy named uh, Joseph Simfukwe. Godly, wise man. And David said, why don't you go to his advisee group? I was visiting, and so I went to his advisee group, and they were dealing with AIDS and how to minister in the context of just the decimation of their nation through AIDS. And so it was a little advisee group of a couple women and of a man and of Joseph and of me, and the man was a pastor, and he was probably 35, 40 years old. And it's awkward to talk about AIDS. It's very awkward because there's a lot of a lot of deceit that surrounds it. Superstition. It's just very awkward, right? So they're talking about it, and then the man says to Joe, uh, you know, Principal Simfukwe, I have a question. And here was his question. He said, um, in my church, he was a pastor. He said, in my church, we have a woman who is dying of AIDS. And he said, I was in her hospital room, and there were a number of family members and friends in the hospital room. And he said, "Um, I don't know how to get people to face AIDS. And I don't know how to get them to face death. And I was in the room with her, and she said, would you come here? And I leaned over the bed, and she said, would you please get everybody out of the room? And he said, so I stood up and I asked everybody, all the family members and friends, to get out of the room. And then I went over to her and I said, how, you know, how can I help you? And she said, I need to prepare to die. And she said, my family won't let me talk about death. Everybody is, is, is not allowing me to talk about death. And I need to prepare to die. Okay, so that's the first story. Are you with me? All Christians. So then Nathan's dying. You heard from David about Nathan dying, our brother. 
And so for quite a while, we pray that God will heal him, like David did. And it's a part of the pastoral prayers, and we're praying. And as time goes on, what what becomes clear is that God has answered, and that Nathan is going to die. He's not going to be healed. And so then what do you do as a Christian? What do you do? What do you do? So you pray what? I said prepare. Well, yeah, you prepare. And preparation means you pray what? What do you pray? That God will, well, that God will help them do the work of preparing for the loss of this father of four children under the age of six, seven, yeah, and his wife leaving them behind, and that God will help them prepare for his absence and him to prepare to meet God. And so what you do is you begin to pray that God will help them do the work of dying, right? The work of dying, right? Isn't that a godly prayer? We had a man in our church, and he had been, uh, you know, in a charismatic group. Uh, he had, and he'd been in our church for years. And a couple of weeks after I started changing my prayers, he came up to me. He was furious. Why? Why was he angry? He was angry about my brother. And he was angry about my prayers about my brother. Now, listen, you want to feel violated? You have somebody in your church come up and tell them they're angry at how you're praying for your brother who's dying. It just doesn't feel like sympathy. <laughs> or empathy or any of those pithies. But I'm trying to love him. And I say to him, so what's the issue? And he said, you have no faith. I say, I have what? If you had faith, you wouldn't be praying that God would help him do the work of dying. And I'm thinking, dude. And I looked at him and I said, say his name was Bob. I said, Bob. Help me understand this. Do some Christians die? Well, yeah. And I said, well, if some Christians die, should they do the work of dying well? Should, should we be concerned that they do the work of dying well? Yeah. I said, should we be concerned that God helps them do the work of dying well? Well, yeah. I said, should we pray that God will help them do the work of dying well? And he's still fully on board. Yeah. I said, so how do you know when to pray? (laughs) At what point may I start praying that my brother will be able to die well and that God will help him? It wasn't long until he left the church after, what, 10, 12 years? And men, we can't be that guy. And I fear that often we are. I fear that often it's all about us, our insecurities, our twisted notions of what is proper and isn't proper. And think about being a man that's so oblivious to Tim Bailey, right? Okay? That he would say that to me. And yet, isn't that how we sound a lot of times to people in our churches that are suffering? 
we're completely clueless to what we're saying, to how it makes anybody else feel. You know, and it's just about us. And he was just so dead set that he would face every obstacle in his life in such a way that he would never have a negative confession. Right? And that's, that's what it was, you know. So, if we are going to be helpful as pastors and, and as deacons and as elders, and if our wives are going to be helpful, we have to suffer. We absolutely have to enter into people's suffering. We have to do it. And you will. I liked what Adam said at the end of his talk where he said, <laughs> I don't know how you said it, but he said, I just fail all the time. You know, oh, it's the, it was the one about I serve blaspheme, basically, you know. And then Adam said, I'm not saying that you should say that. But my point is we have to, we have to give ourselves to standing in the gap, and we will make mistakes. We will sin. You will say stupid things like that. But we have to love our people. And that's the crying need of the church today is shepherds who love their sheep. We have to love them. And that requires us to forget about ourselves. And if you think you have trouble forgetting about yourself, you don't know Tim Bailey. Okay. So just like Adam, I know how many mistakes you make because I make many, many more. (laughs) Ask anybody in this church. (laughs) Wayne's been with me from the beginning. Ask my brother. No, don't ask my brother. This has been a production of Clearnote Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.